I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me today is Frida Hoffman, author of Carry Me, Stories of Pregnancy Loss. Upon discovering that so many other women had experienced miscarriage but had never felt comfortable sharing it, certified coach Frida Hoffman felt not only betrayed by and furious with the patriarchy that made them feel ashamed, but also a profound sense of sadness that women seemed to be made to suffer in silence. Shame and silence begets shame and silence. But she saw the opportunity to break that by sharing that essential affirmation that we are not alone in our experience of loss, infertility, healing, uncertainty, longing for catharsis, or mindset. Frida Hoffman is a transformative coach and mediator, creative consultant and entrepreneur with a passion for supporting women and courageous leadership. She has an MA in social work and conflict management and a dual degree in psychology and anthropology from Johns Hopkins University. Welcome to the show, Frida. Nice to have you on today. Thanks so much for having me, Catherine. It's great to be here. Well, as I said, I guess, in the introduction, we're going to be talking about the taboos of pregnancy loss and the politics of women's bodies. I I think that sums it up. (laughs) Yes, and it couldn't be a more timely subject, I would say, with, you know, the Supreme Court's imminent decision to strike down Roe and these overlapping forms of reproductive grief that include abortion, actually. So I think this is an interesting moment to be having this conversation. So you say over the overlapping um, conflicts and emotions associated with abortion, pregnancy loss. Um, let's let's start with it. How do they overlap? What's the difference whether one has an abortion or chooses to have an abortion, or one has a spontaneous abortion and has a miscarriage? Which I I you have suffered from. Uh, two miscarriages, as I understand it. Yes, that's correct. And I would say that that what surprised me in my own experience is learning that the medical forms of pregnancy release that do not end in a happy birth include miscarriage, stillbirth, and abortion. So these procedures that um, women get, you know, when they're having uh, the experiences of, of loss is the same. So, you know, with these laws changing, um, it really does become an issue of access uh, to quality care. You know, in my instance, uh, I had what they thought was an ectopic pregnancy uh, that I was losing. And, you know, in certain states, come the end of June, it may be that I could be charged for homicide for experiencing an ectopic pregnancy loss because I would have to go in and have a procedure that is effectively an abortion. So it's it's quite shocking this moment we're in. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, as a baby boomer and having gone through, uh, you know, Roe versus Wade and and, and just fighting for all of these reproductive rights, and it's, I guess, I'm kind of repeating what's being said over and over again, but it's just... It's an abomination. I don't know what what we can call mm-hmm. it, but I guess we just have to go forward. Uh, that's all we can do, and uh, that's what your book exactly. does. Exactly. Yeah. Yes, uh, and and sharing 
our stories. I think humanizing the experience of loss and grief is such an important part of these conversations and of how we do ultimately care for one another in, you know, an, an organized healthcare setting, as well as we make laws that support well-being. And, um, yeah, so I think with this book, certainly I wrote this before um, the, the latest news here, but um, it's so important to be normalizing the dialogue around loss and grief so that we can better care for one another. So why do you think we have been or felt ashamed to talk about a miscarriage, for instance. I, I personally just learned from my mother that her mother had a miscarriage. I had, I mean, we were talking yeah. about you know, 50 years. I never knew that she, she's four right. years younger, four years younger than her brother. And my mother said, Oh yes, my mother had a miscarriage in between my brother and me. Really? I, yeah. no one ever discussed it. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. And I, I, I think a big part of that is that women, are made to feel that it's their fault. And so there's this shame that develops that somehow, oh, I did this, or I, you know, tripped down the stairs, or I was, I had that drink that I shouldn't have had, or my body's broken. You know, there are all these tropes, there's all these things that we tell ourselves. And I think a lot of these messages are reinforced by society at large. And um, I think also that a, the medical community has come a very long way in understanding the cause of pregnancy loss. And still, there's so much that we don't know. And there's so much uh, that women hope to hear to understand more about why they experience this loss that doctors can't yet tell them. And so I think that translates into, oh, well, it must be me. It must be my fault. My body failed. I think that's, don't you that's think, a big Frida, part of where that shame feel- comes uh, feel a sense also of uh, I'm a failure. I failed at this, and and that the Absolutely. doctors themselves also. I think there's part of that in terms of their psyche that they too feel I failed. I uh, this pregnancy failed, and no one wants to talk about it. Either the doctor or and for different reasons, or um, or or the woman, or so there's that sense of. It keeps coming up, sense of failure, shame, failure, all of the the negativity surrounding uh, a miscarriage or an abortion. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Yes. We we, we failed. I failed. Um, And I think, you know, when we when we have those feelings, it's so hard to open up and talk about it. And so we don't hear that other people are having these experiences and that further isolates us from them, from one another, and and finding that support that we can give each other. Were you able to talk to somebody when you had your miscarriages or your ectopic pregnancy? I It took me some time to open up, really. Um, I just kind of went inward, even though I have a background in psychology and social work. Um, I just, I found myself in quite a dark place, dark and lonely, and I just, I really had no idea that miscarriage was so common when I was experiencing my own. And, um, you know, as soon as I did start opening up, I would say about a week into my experience of loss, it was just, you know, women were coming out of the woodwork to tell me, oh, me too, me too. I, you know, I know my sister or I had this experience or I have, I've gone through this three times. You know, so many people just came out to share that they too had gone through this. 
you have what 20 stories in your book uh, different women different yeah so including mine all, yeah yeah different uh, situations different ethnicities um how did you come to choose each one of them and 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 why i guess mm, i love that question thank you um well i did speak with many many more women i feel like i've heard hundreds if not thousands of stories since i let folks know that i was interested in doing this project um yeah i i will say that I, the the range of experiences um in these stories is quite vast. So, um, you know, there is, uh, there are women who are struggling with fertility and recurrent miscarriages. There are queer folks. There are, there's a woman who, you know, didn't even plan to have a pregnancy and never intended to become a mother. Um, there are folks who are traveling across the world to get cheaper IVF to be able to have a child, uh, there are many different experiences from poor to very wealthy. Um, and I would say that for the, the vast majority of the stories uh, are more focused around women who, you know, look and um, maybe have similar experiences to me. So that is a shortcoming of the book. And yet I think these experiences of loss are, are quite diverse. Um, and when I say look and, and, and have similar experiences to me, meaning white, cis, hetero, you know, 30s to 40s or so. What about uh, pregnancy loss as a public health issue? Because we don't always, I don't think as a society, we don't look at it as a public health issue, and it is for lots of different reasons. So let's yes, talk about yes. Yeah. Yeah, I think, um, you know, these stories and just these conversations with so many women and couples who have gone through this experience have really illuminated for me how poorly we approach this from a public health perspective, that there's so little uh, that we have access to as children and even young adults about loss that we really don't understand how common it is. And, you know, there there's so many ways that we can educate and make that more um, uh, of a known quantity so that our expectations can be, you know, somewhat measured. And yet we, we don't do that. And I think, you know, sex education, sex health education has been dialed so far back in this country over the last, I would say, you know, 20 years or so, um, that that certainly is going in the wrong direction in terms of um, what we can do to to use public health to get the word out and to, to better support folks through this experience. Well, we don't talk about those kinds of nasty issues when we're telling, about, <laughs> uh, giving information in school about sex. We talk about mommy and daddy and loving each other and having a beautiful baby right. and end of story, which is yeah. uh, a Cinderella yeah, it's story. Yeah, the Hollywood ending. Yes, yeah. the great <laughs> ending. And uh, so th th that's ver not the truth and it's not science and it's uh it's a lot of things but it's certainly not helpful let's put it that way yes i think you're absolutely right, right. It, 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 when it's not when it's not a, a, a picture of reality it's less helpful and i think if folks knew that you know upwards of one in four if not one in three pregnancies end in loss by by some measures i think that would be a different conversation 
So when should we start having this conversation? I mean, you're having a, your book is about having conversations with women who have obviously been through this loss. When do mm-hmm. we start having conversations, real conversations with our children, with women? I mean, so that the next generation of women, you're talking about the past 20 years, we've just, you know, we're not doing a very good job about uh, mm. informing our children about sex or marriage, uh, and not marriage necessarily, just sex and, and reproduction and all the th- things right. that can happen to one. Yeah. So uh, when do we start talking to our daughters? Yeah, I mean, that's such a great question. I Some of the women that I interviewed for this book said, that, you know, they, they want to start having those conversations with their living children about the children who didn't make it, um, you know, when they're still quite young, when they're three, four, five, you know, to really start to just start seeding these conversations so that it becomes normalized. And I think if we can reach children at a younger age to have just honest conversations that, hey, not all pregnancies end in a happy birth, then that's, you know, that's, that's a beautiful start to have those loving conversations. Um, the earlier, probably the better. I think, you know, when do we start talking to children about death generally? I guess when a grandparent passes away or someone, you know, in the family, um, you know, comes to their end, that becomes a conversation. And so what if we started having those conversations about pregnancy loss when they occur or when it feels like it's, you know, it's okay to talk about for the parents, but they've, they've healed enough that they're in an okay place to discuss that with their children. So we're talking about normalizing the dialogue around loss. And I think that does change or it does change then expectations because if you, if you're going to, uh, well, we can take the medical community. If, if one is having surgery, they tell you the risks usually, I mean, they have to now legally, what are the risks of having these surgeries? So you have realistic expectations of what can happen. I think whenever you right. do that, which is what you're describing, we're in a much better place. Um, and absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And uh, yeah, that's essential. So, how do we make this connection now, because your book is timely, between the uh, choosing to terminate a pregnancy and not choosing and, and, and not choosing or not wanting to terminate the pregnancy, but in both cases, it's loss. How is it mm-hmm. different or is it different? Is it a different feeling? Or what are the feelings attached to both of those? One's a choice and one's not. I I think there are a lot of feelings that are shared in those experiences. And I'll be honest, I've had, you know, the morning after pill. As I've, I've technically had, um, you know, the pill abortion myself as well as experienced miscarriage. And those were quite different experiences for me. Um, one was with a lot of longing um, and hope. And the other, I was much younger. Um, and the hope was to not get pregnant <laughs> and how interesting um, when those things can change so dramatically over our lifetime. Um, but, you know, that's my very limited experience. But I think, you know, we're, we're coming to understand that these are complex sets of emotions here that um, while I may be choosing to... Uh, and a pregnancy or not, I, I may experience that, that 
range of emotions um, and I still need the same kind of care or might need similar access to care that I would um, either way. So I think that it really just comes down to healthcare and what are we doing to ensure that our physical and mental well-being is really being attended to in, in, in the best way possible. And I think the way these laws are going, we're, we're really moving away from health and well-being and into criminalization. Um, and it's, it's a scary place uh, to go. So again, I think just sharing these stories and really humanizing the experience for folks who might not know or understand the complexity of, you know, the physical experience and the emotional experience. Yeah. I mean, in, in my opinion, we are moving towards, I, I may even say it in a, uh, maybe a little bit stronger. I mean, I think they're draconian uh, laws that we are beginning to yeah. institute for women and, um, I guess, and you're talking about we need the emotional support. So what we're going to do Mm -hmm. is just the opposite because women are going to be afraid of, they're going to get abortions. They're going, somehow they're going to do it. And, but that support's not going to be there and being open and normalizing the feelings is, is going to be gone. You're going to have to really pick and choose who you want to talk to your, uh, Mm -hmm. choice about, uh, you know, so that it, it's, it, it it really kind of goes absolutely against what we're ta- what you're saying, and I'm agreeing with. Um, it's going to be a very difficult, yeah. I mean, we yeah. We we know that women are going to continue to have abortions. The question is whether they'll be safe or not. And the way these laws are going, it looks like we're risking that they won't be safe. So well, again, it's like we're putting who are you not know women's health perform abortions, not having had the experience of doing it, not being trained, not being out there, not discussing it with their colleagues. I mean, there's a whole right. litany of things that are, are going to go wrong medically and emotionally and physically for the woman and yeah. for physicians. Yeah. Right. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is an uplifting <laughs> conversation. This is a dangerous topic. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's keep talking because that's what your book is all about. I mean, you wrote the book, exactly. you're talking about it. This, you, you, we just have to get it out there. Um, we do. Yeah. Um, it's funny, as I've been sharing with folks, you know, that the, this launch is coming up for the book, and there's still some folks in my orbit who don't know that I've been working on this project somehow. Um, <laughs> and so when I've shared with them, oh, yeah, so I have this book coming out. Oh, what's the book about? I, I generally get the response from people that, oh, I'm, you know, I'm so sorry, or we don't have to talk about that. And I always say, no, this is exactly the point. We should be talking about it. Please don't close up and not have the conversation with me. Like, this is, this is what the book is about. <laughs> so I absolutely, these conversations are important. And even when they veer into, you know, very, uh, hot hot button issues like abortion. This is, you know, our bodies, our health, our politics are all related. Well, this is a taboo subject, and, and that's what you're, I mean, that's the illustration when you're talking about these friends or colleagues. Well, we don't have to talk right. about it. Yeah. Well, and actually, it could. I mean, why don't you want to talk about it? Maybe would be my next question to them. Um, but uh, <laughs> right, depending, right. Yeah. 
depending on who they are. Yeah, and I think, sure. And I think part of that is just, you know, those taboo subjects, we just, we feel uncomfortable as a society talking about them. And yet, why? You know, um, and I think we don't want to make the other person feel uncomfortable or that they have to share too much or that, oh, it's about your body and that's very personal and it's a very intimate experience. And, and yes, that can all be true for the person experiencing that. And also, you know, when we're, when we're not talking about it, again, we're not getting that support. And I think this kind of reminds me of the whole 12-week rule, um, that this common idea that um, folks shouldn't announce the pregnancy until after the first trimester, um, when the chances of miscarriage are, are significantly lower. Um, and And when we do that, when we have this notion that you, you can't share, it also means that if there's a loss, folks don't know, you know, that you were pregnant, and then it's an, this kind of longer conversation to be had, oh, well, now I have to explain I was pregnant, and now there's not a pregnancy, and so it's just, you know, it's too much work, I don't want to burden them with that. And so women don't get the support, the social support, um, because they're not sharing from the outset. And so there is there is a real tension there, and I respect couples who you know, and women who decide not to announce pregnancies until after whatever time feels comfortable. That's always a personal choice. But really, there, there is, you know, some, some good questioning around that rule, so to speak. Frida, what about the different, and you had different couples in, in, that you spoke to, are there differences between, let's say, if your partner is a man or your partner is another woman, or if you have no partner at all? Those are three different scenarios. Sure. Yeah. Sure. I think, you know, and, and every, every experience is unique. And, um, but yeah, I think there were some interesting differences in the experience of loss um, for, for many of the women that I spoke with who, who had, yeah, either a, a woman, um, at a, another partner, and could really just appreciate at least the physical experience of being a woman and having periods and going through, you know, the, the reproductive changes throughout the course of a cycle. And so there's a certain knowledge, a certain intimate knowledge of uh, the female body that maybe a male partner could not appreciate um, to a more fuller extent. Um, yeah, so in that sense, I think there are some some differences. And of course, the experience of going through loss or grief um, without a partner can, there, I think there, there are both pros and cons to that. I know one woman in the, in the book shared that at some point it felt like she was competing for grieving with her, her husband, that they were both so distraught by this loss that she felt like, you know, as a woman who was carrying this pregnancy and no longer that she should have priority in her grieving. And, you know, such a fascinating <laughs> set of contradictions and just experience and, you know, feelings that we move through in, in our grief. So, yeah, I mean, I think that there, there was a lot of nuance there. And I, I mentioned those, were there any other nuances that I haven't asked the question, uh, you know, uh, that you in interviewing these women, um, that other nuances came into play depending on the situation of, of, of the person you were inter interviewing? Yeah, I mean, I will, I, so many, so many, Catherine. I, I think what 
something else that really shocked me and also resonated given my own experiences was just the financial burden of loss that, you know, we, we're, we're so underserved in, in healthcare in this country generally. It's, it's relatively expensive. Um, most people do not have, you know, adequate healthcare. And many people end up paying out of pocket for um, pretty traumatic experiences and get these surprise bills later. And that, that is, you know, par for the course here, too. Um, and I, I think, you know, for some reason in my mind, it was like, oh, well, you know, you're pregnant, you get health care. That's, of course, going to be part of the package. And if there's a loss, that will be covered, too. But no, <laughs> many of these uh, procedures, you know, women are getting these giant bills afterwards. And, you know, that's not even talking about, uh, you know, IUI or IVF using these other um, ways to stimulate fertility, which are incredibly expensive. You know, for some couples, this can be upwards of $20,000 for each attempt to um, get pregnant with in vitro fertilization, for instance. So I think just the financial burden of loss was shocking to me and that there there is so much nuance within that. Yeah, I think that's an important point because I, ha- I do know many women who have gone through IV and yes, anywhere from ten to $20,000 uh, for one procedure. The loss mm-hmm. is, yeah, so the loss covers, and I think that I'm glad you mentioned that because the financial loss is also horrific. And that brings us into, well, you're talking about the healthcare system. There's really little transparency in terms of cost and um, all the information is opaque, I guess if we can use that word. And Mm -hmm. that's a problem. That's an issue. Um, What about, how do men fit into this picture besides Mm. impregnation (laughs) 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 or sperm? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Well, and I think that depends on, you know, what, what each woman's situation is, right? So, um, and this is, of course, you know, assuming a, a hetero couple generally we're talking about. But, um, yeah, I think, you know, men, for the most part, have even fewer opportunities to express their grief and get support. So if there are grieving uh, fathers out there, would-be fathers, I think that that's a, that's a real hurdle. I know that... Um, there, there is one book I've seen on the topic that came out in the last few years that specifically targets um, men and their grieving pregnancy loss, and that that's um, pretty revolutionary. I think in terms of support groups and just uh, it being a conversation at large, it's it's even less so than for women grieving. So I, I think you know we have a long way to go in terms of supporting men and in mental health. Um, and that really we can see very clearly here in pregnancy loss as well. Well, Frida, this is, uh, uh, besides being an interesting conversation, it's really informative, and we have one minute left. So I want Carry Me is the title of the book, Stories of Pregnancy Loss, and Frida Hoffman is the author. And the book comes out, what, June 1st? June 7th. June 7th, okay. June 7th. Where can we get the book, website and or websites to go to for information, obviously, about the book and your work. Yeah, so my website is FridaHoffman.com, and the book is available now for pre-ordered. I think they're actually shipping 
um, through Amazon and Bookshop already or wherever you buy your books. Um, so go out, please support this effort to normalize the dialogue around loss um, so that we can support one another better. And, and Catherine, thanks so much for having me on. This is great to chat with you. Yeah, it was great chatting, talking to you and chatting. Thank you, Frida Hoffman. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Psych Up Live with host Dr. Suzanne Phillips offers a psychological perspective on coping with common and current life issues. This show addresses topics as varied as marital stress, insomnia, depression, raising teens, campus violence, and building self-resilience. Listen in as Dr. Phillips and her guest experts share the latest in books, findings, and information that will inform and enhance your life journey. Psych Up Live is heard every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Conservation starts with us. Learn about environmental concerns each week when you tune in to Our Wild World with host Ellie Weiss. Our show centers on Africa each week and what's being done to save our wildlife, ecology, and ourselves. However, we'll also discuss what's going on closer to home. And most importantly, we'll let you know what can be done in our own backyards by featuring guest experts and featuring your questions and answers. Listen every Monday morning at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Voice America Network proudly presents The Catherine Zox Show for women, men, children, and families. Catherine magically combines her compassion, experience, and talent to bring listeners a show that's upbeat, informative, and yes, a little sassy. Tune in every Wednesday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern to The Catherine Zox Show on the Voice America channel. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me today is Joanne Tubbs Kelly, author of Walking Him Home, Helping My Husband Die with Dignity. It's no secret we have to make some tough decisions with regard to loved one's health and care as they age. As more and more states legalize medical aid in dying, the conversation surrounding America's healthcare system and the choice to end suffering is growing. Joanne Kelly chronicles her journey coming to terms with her kind, funny husband's terminal illness and his quest to decide what his death looks like, despite her desire to keep him alive. Alan and Joanne marry in midlife and live a happily ever after existence until at age 69, Alan is diagnosed with a rare, fatal, neurodegenerative illness. As he becomes increasingly disabled and dependent on others and decreasingly able to find joy in life, he decides he wants to end his suffering using Colorado's medical aid and dying law. Tender and heartfelt, this is one woman's story about loving extravagantly and being loved in kind. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on today, Joanne. 
Thank you, Catherine. I'm very delighted to um, that you invited me to join you today. Well, my show today is sort of just not sort of. We are discussing the beginning of we've discussed the beginning of life and now the end of life. And uh, unfortunately, in my experience with friends and colleagues, this is as a baby boomer, I'm seeing this more and more. The situation that you are in with your husband. And it doesn't get resolved well, usually. So let's talk about your experience, because in the end, you were able to utilize the Colorado Medical Aid and Dying Law. Um, how did you get to that point? I mean, obviously, this is what your book is about. Right. Um you know, Alan had always said, long before he was diagnosed with um, multiple system atrophy, he had always said, we treat our pets better than we treat our elders, and with the idea being that when our pets um, get old and decrepit, or if they're suffering, we, we help them um, make the transition. But we, we haven't traditionally been able to do that for... Um, people, people who are dying in our in our society. But um, back in 1997, Oregon was the first state to to enact a medical aid and dying law, and so they have a good, solid 25 years of experience with medical aid and dying. And since then, uh, 10 more jurisdictions, um, nine more states in the District of Columbia have has joined Oregon um, to pass laws of, um, allowing medical aid and dying. So we were very fortunate that we lived in a state um, that allowed medical aid and dying. We, we supported the legislation in 2016, and um, Alan was just overjoyed when Colorado passed that law. So I was not at all surprised when um, his illness became um, advanced, that he wanted to take advantage of the law himself. And you lived in Colorado, so that makes a huge difference if you can do and ha take advantage of that kind of, of treatment or uh, of that law. If you live there, I mean, unfortunately for many people, they're not going to be able to do that because... They're going, if one, I don't know what the laws or the statutes are, but, you know, if you live in a different state where you can't do that, um, then you are moving to, a, may move to a place that's unfamiliar. There's not a lot of support, uh, which is not the case when you live in a state that, that's, that's passed that law. But right. let's, I, I want to get back to the, your relationship with Alan. And I, I think as I read in the beginning, I mean, you didn't want him to die he wanted to die with dignity or he wanted to die the way he wanted to die. Can you? Right. Talk, yeah. So tell us about his, the progression of the illness and at what point he decided this is not what I want to do. I don't want to, to live this way. And you know, the implications of what that would mean. And then your attitude and how that changed in terms of how you saw his dying, whether taking advantage of this, medical aid in dying or dying, I don't want to say a natural death because I think it becomes unnatural many times at the uh -huh. end. Uh, so that's a long question. <laughs> well, I think I get the gist of it. Okay, um, good. 
So Alan, um, Alan was just a lovely man, and I, I was blessed to have met him um, when I did. We, we were married for 22 and a half years, um, and I really didn't want him to die. I, um, I wanted him to be in my life, and it took me a long time to finally come to the realization that um, he was going to die whether I wanted him to or not. I didn't have a choice about that. The only choice I had was whether or not I was going to support him in his quest to die with dignity. He wanted to die in his own bedroom. He had had been living at a um, nursing home for the last three months of his life because I could no longer take care of him at home. But um, he wanted to die in his own bedroom surrounded by people who loved him. And um, so um, when push came to shove, I arranged for that to happen. Um, I arranged an ambulance to bring him home. Uh, He was in a wheelchair, so um, getting him um, around was not easy. But an ambulance brought him home and um, put him in his bed, and he was just so delighted to be home. Um, and we had, um, our minister and Alan's two daughters and a couple of his granddaughters came as well. And a couple of very close friends came. Um, one set of friends, uh, were here to support us rather than to support Alan. So they, they made chicken soup for us and they made cookies for us and they, you know, they hung up our coats and they brought, made sure that we were drinking tea or water and those sorts of things. So um, we surrounded Alan with people who loved him, and he died a very, very peaceful, beautiful death. Um, so, you know, when you were interviewing Julie Liscott Haynes the other day, when you were talking about adulting, you said, If they love them, referring to parents, they would let them go, referring to their children. Well, I think this is another case where, as a spouse, if you love your spouse, you will let them go, and you will help them go in the way that they want to go. Because too often, our medical system just keeps um, providing uh, means to keep you alive when there's really... Um, not a whole lot of benefit to being alive. So um, pe- people hang on for a lot longer than they necessarily, uh, than they would if they weren't being treated by the medical system. So having the option of medical aid in dying is a real blessing to people who are suffering. And for Alan, the suffering wasn't necessarily physical. Uh, although he did have a lot of pain when he sat in his wheelchair. Um, but his suffering was he hated being reliant on other people. He, his, he didn't have autonomy. He didn't have agency in his life. He had to have people taking care of him. And he also had lost the ability to um, find joy in his life, um, And Alan was a joyful person. He loved to tell jokes. He loved to make people make people smile. Um, 
And he could no longer talk in a way that people could understand him easily. He sounded like someone who was falling down drunk because the part of his brain that was affected by this illness was the same part of the brain that is affected by alcohol. So um, he was having trouble. He couldn't even make people smile because it was hard for him to tell a joke. So he lost so much of the joy in his life, the things that made him really happy. So his suffering wasn't just physical. It was also this... um, I don't exactly know what to call it. But well, this, this, I, I think people do think of it as just physical, you know, just physical, and it's not, as you say. It's who you are. It's your spirit, your emotion, your right. your all all of the things that make you who you are are gone or missing exactly. or dissolving. I guess is the word. But can we just and and I I, I know some unfortunately many people in that position. I have a friend who died of ovarian cancer, just a horrible, horrible death. And with all this false hope and false hope that came from her medical practitioners and it, it, uh, a terrible way to die. Someone I had known for so many years and it was was painful to watch her die that way. Uh, so, uh, but because we didn't really define it, but medical aid in dying, what is that? Talk to us exactly specifically. Okay. You, he, Alan was at home. He's in his own bed. He's with you, his friends and, uh, your uh, minister, but what exactly is the process? Medical aid in dying. What what does that is that an, an it, tell us what it is? So medical aid in dying is offered to people whose death is inevitable. So they're going to die from a disease process within the next six months. Um, so you have to have a terminal diagnosis. You um, have to have decisional capacity, and that means that you can make decisions on your own behalf, so good decisions on your own behalf. Um, And two doctors have to um, attest to the fact that both that you have a terminal diagnosis, that you are expected to die within six months, and that you have decisional capacity. And the third requirement is that you have to have the ability to self-administer the drug cocktail. No, you, you're not allowed to have help from anyone in drinking the cocktail. Um, if you have a feeding tube, you have to be able to pour the cocktail into the feeding tube yourself. So um, that is... Um, what distinguishes it really from euthanasia, because in euthanasia, somebody else administers the drug. Um, but so then, the Joanne, I, I'm stopping you there, but timing is everything, because you could get to, one could get to the point if you don't make that decision that the your the patient or the loved one won't be able to make that decision. Whereas maybe a week before he or she would have been able to do that. Cause once you can't, then you can't do that. It has, is that it? I mean, that you're absolutely right. And with Alan, he, his illness um, made it both the decisional capacity question and the question about self-administering the drug. So we we met with the palliative care team um, about a year before he died, and that was just to sort of start the process. He he wanted to find out everything he needed to know so he could be sure and be ready at the right time. 
And they made it sound at that point in time that it would be really questionable for him with his particular illness. It would be difficult for him to find that exact sweet spot. And so the following August, so that was in January, the following August, um, we met with his doctor, his uh, neurologist, and asked if they were if they could would recommend that he be placed in hospice because Alan wanted to donate his brain to um, to research about the particular his particular illness um, and and in order so if you're in hospice when you die hospice declares you dead and your brain goes autom- and your body goes automatically to the um mortuary which is where the brain harvesting takes place but if you die and you're not in hospice you you go to the coroner's office your body goes to the coroner's office and they can keep you for days but the brain the brain has to be harvested within 24 hours and so alan was really anxious to be able to die in hospice and so in august he asked his doctor um to recommend him for hospice and his doctor agreed to do that but the thing about being recommended for hospice also is that there's the assumption that you have six months to live. So at that point in time, Alan was free to apply for medical aid in dying because his doctor had said, you have six months to live. So um, Alan applied, let's see, his, we, we started the paperwork in September, and then in October, he had, in early October, he had his official meeting with the palliative care team where he was evaluated to make sure that he met all of the criteria. And then he was referred back to his doctor who also had to um, evaluate him to make sure he met all the criteria. And then uh, three weeks after that, that we finally got notice that he was approved for medical aid in dying. Joanne, you know, it sounds like a very exhausting process under the best of circumstances and here absolutely and i don't think alan would have been able to manage it without my help it would see it would be impossible it seems to me so here you are a supportive spouse and if you don't have that if one doesn't have that or doesn't have that level of of uh connection with another person this probably wouldn't be able to do this i i would assume i mean you who had to work together. And here's another question. What if you have a partner who doesn't want you to do this and is not supportive? What happens then? Well, then you you probably would want to find somebody other than your partner to help you through the process. (laughs) And I can certainly understand that partners would be very, very reluctant because I was for a long time until I finally made the leap into believing that um, it was the most loving thing that I could do for my husband Mm -hmm. was to help him die the way he wanted to die. Letting go. Yeah, letting go. Writing this book obviously is really important, and and the one thing you said you, you started like a year early, and I I think that if just I'm talking thinking about it now in terms of 
a societal issue. If we start talking about this and reading your book and books like that, we can start talking about it years earlier. Like this, the way Absolutely. I, and that will make a huge difference in terms of the person themselves, family, and the people who, you know, are connected to the the person. Because it, it you know, as you begin to talk about it, you become aware. You write it down. You talk. It makes it real. These sort of healthcare directives aren't really that helpful, I don't think, because they're just a piece of paper and no one looks at them till the person is in the hospital. And okay, what did, mm-hmm. what did my partner or pa- parent or child, what would they want me to do? You really have to talk about it. Obviously, that's why you wrote the book. But um, what about the after? Well, actually, yeah, go ahead. Um, one of the reasons I wrote the book is because. Whenever um, I've been a reader all my life, and whenever I face, I'm faced with a new situation, the first thing I do is find a book about it um, so that I can see how other people have handled uh, the particular situation that, that I am in. But when I went looking for a book about a spouse dying using medical aid and dying, I didn't find one. And so I decided to write it. Um, I decided that it was a really important thing to help other people um, going through this process, to have some kind of a roadmap. And I don't, I don't pretend that my book is the roadmap. It is a roadmap. But I'm hoping that it will be really helpful for people who have to make these hard decisions. I believe, and um, you can look this up after the show if you're interested, but... I, I think there's a law in the Netherlands when you reach the age of 75, whether you're sick or not, and you've decided I've had enough, that you can end it. You can end your life. Like I can't, that this is, I've lived 75 years and um, I, I don't want to live anymore. And uh, you can legally, I, I think it has more to do with euthanasia. You can do so, you can terminate your life. That's um, the, I'm not. Yeah, I'm not totally clear on the laws in the various countries, but there are several countries in Europe and also in in Canada that allow um, people to take their lives um, for various reasons. And yes, euthanasia is practiced in um, Switzerland. It's practiced in um, Belgium and Holland and. I think there are a couple more um, countries. Oh, Australia. There are several several states in Australia that have approved it. So more and more of the world is seeing the benefit of helping people end their lives the way they'd like to, for sure. Did you, after Alan died, did you have any, I mean, I think this is a nat, can be a natural reaction, even though you felt, obviously, he did the right thing, you did the right thing. Were there any moments of regrets that you thought, oh, maybe, or maybe I shouldn't have, maybe I should, like, and I don't mean something that was long-lasting, but I mean right after the event, yeah, right after he died. Mostly right after he died, I felt relief because he stayed alive longer than he wanted to. Um, but he he had made the decision that he was ready to die in early December, and I asked him if he could wait until after the holidays 
so that his daughters and his granddaughters and I wouldn't be um, grieving for the rest of our lives at Christmas time. And he decided that, yes, he could wait until January to die. And so I felt sort of responsible that I had encouraged him to suffer more, to, to spend another month suffering when he could have died earlier. So I was relieved that that he finally got the rest, the the peace that he was looking for when he died. Most of my regrets were before he died. I just was, I really struggled with um, making the decision. And this was a decision that I had to make over and over again to help him, to support him. Because I kept going back to, but I want him to live, but I want him to live. So, but I, I'd like to go back to what you were saying about um, having the having the discussion with your family members early. Um, I wanted to point out to people that there's a um, a nonprofit organization called Compassion and Choices that has really good tools for having the discussion. And there's also um, the Conversation Project. It's something people can look up on the web that has tools for having the conversation with your loved ones about how they want to die. So do they, do they want to be kept alive as long as possible or when death is inevitable, um, do they want to just let things take their course? So Joanne, thanks for sharing that book with us. We have one minute left. So I want to also make sure that we know that I repeat, the name of your book, Walking Him Home, Helping My Husband Die with Dignity, and the author is Joanne Tubbs-Kelly. So, Joanne, I mean, so much more to talk about, but give us a website and or websites we can go to to continue the conversation. I encourage people to go to joannetubbskelly.com. So, J-O-A-N-N-E-T-U-B-B-S-K-E-L-L-Y. And they'll learn lots more about my book and where they can get it. Great. Thanks so much for being on the show today. Great conversation. Thank you for having me. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. (laughs) 